0: Welcome to The Thing About Austen, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this
1: episode, we're talking about Harriet's sore throat. For this episode, we are thrilled to welcome back our guest, Dr. Rena Jones, Rena is an epidemiologist with master's and doctoral degrees in epidemiology from the State University of New York. She is on the faculty at the Yale School of Public Health and in her day job is a researcher at the National Cancer Institute. She publishes frequently on the topics of
2: environment and health. Welcome back, Rena. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And this is, of course, my moment to say I'm here for fun and not in my official capacity or representing my employer. Thank you for bearing with this requisite disclaimer. Happy to be here. And we're so happy to have you.
1: So longtime listeners will know that Rena was on a previous episode of the podcast discussing Mr. Woodhouse's concerns over the air in London. And he had many concerns. Many. Many. Today, we are actually taking a look at a scene that happens just after that. Isabella and John Knightley are still at Hartfield with their children for the Christmas holiday. So obviously, Mr. Weston wishes to host a dinner engagement at Randall's. Mr. Weston, always down for a good time. He loves a good party. Yeah, He does. Unfortunately, Harriet, who was also invited, is unable to attend as she has come down with a bad cold. Emma has gone to visit Harriet, and upon leaving Mrs. Goddard's, she runs into
0: Mr. Elton. So here is the passage from the text. Emma was just describing the nature of her friend's complaint. A throat very much inflamed, with a great deal of heat about her, a quick, low pulse, and etc. And she was sorry to find from Mrs. Goddard that Harriet was liable to very bad sore throats and had often alarmed her with them. Mr. Elton looked all alarm on the occasion as he exclaimed, A sore throat? I hope not infectious. I hope not of a putrid infectious sort. Has Perry seen her? Indeed, you should take care of yourself as well as of your friend. Let me entreat you to run no risks. Why does not Perry see her? He's got lots of questions. He's very concerned. (laughs) So, let's start with the basics on this one. Elton is describing Harriet's sore throat as potentially putrid, of an infectious sort, and even later in the novel he also describes it as an ulcerated sore throat. So, Rena, wh- what do these descriptions mean? What what is Hi- Harriet's diagnosis
2: here?
1: <laughs> I mean, her diagnosis according to apparently Dr. Elton. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Elton has a flair for the dramatic. Mm -hmm. Well, so so let's set the stage about the time period again, right, to anchor what was known and not known at the time. Early 19th century England, thinking about the sorts of illnesses that were common at the time in this era before lots of deep medical understanding, people were really concerned about fever, which covered a lot of things, flu, cholera, typhus, for example, which killed a lot of people and would have been worrisome to even suggest that Harriet might have Mm. because typhus was known as putrid fever. And it seems plausible to me that Austin, you know, had typhus in mind sometimes because Elton calling it a putrid sort could be him trying to be dramatic and raising even the specter of typhus because there was no cure and many people didn't survive. And you may know that Austin herself suffered from typhus while she was at boarding school, as did her sister, Uh and they survived. Um, So just typhus being a candidate is is something to think about. But I think a putrid sore throat, especially one that she was liable to, meaning she'd had it before, is probably something a little bit more benign, like strep, streptococcus, right? You know, many of us have had that. And even though we treat it today with antibiotics, it typically goes away on its own within a week or so with rest and and that sort of thing. And the other possibility, of course, is that uh, the putrid might not mean much. It's just a plot device. You Ah, know, sore throat here could be a way for Austin to get Elton on Emma's good side, right? He's expressing concern for her friend. And sure. And Austin frequently used illnesses as a plot device. You know, you frequently see characters advising each other to get medical advice and fussing over each other often for comic effect. So that's a possibility, too.
1: Also very convenient that Harriet won't be able to attend this dinner party so that Emma and Elton have to have the world's most awkward carriage ride later on. <laughs> that's <right. so. laughs>
0: Yes, definitely driving the plot there.
1: <laughs> so later we learn that Perry, the apothecary, Mr. Woodhouse's favorite person in town, has <laughs> been called in for Harriet. And during this discussion... Elton references a cordial for Harriet's throat. Here he is actually doing a play on words and referring to Emma as the cordial in his complimentary way, as he does. But of course, we want to know what would have been the likely treatments for this kind of sickness, and what did go into an actual cordial?
2: Yeah, so... Cordials the way folks today are thinking about them are just alcohol right liqueurs and we drink them for fun originally these were used though for medicinal purposes the word cordial actually comes from the Latin word cordialis or cordialis which means of or for the heart something done with warmth you're being cordial and cordials were intended to ingest to make you feel better. They were just spirits that were in, you know, infused with herbs or oils or fruit and flowers, things that were thought to have healing properties. And the alcohol was the delivery device for those beneficial components, right? Alcohol does have antiseptic properties. So it could be that this was actually the true benefit when people were consuming cordials. You know, cordials have evolved to be more flavorful in something you drink for fun. Your grandma keeps in a fancy bottle on a shelf collecting <laughs> dust rather than you know, traditional medicine. But the idea of alcohol as helping with illness has actually been around a long time. And even more recently than, you know, 1800s, you've probably heard of someone saying, oh, drink some brandy to cure a cold or, you know, that sort of thing. The efficacy is not clear. It's true that in really concentrated form, alcohol can kill germs. But your standard vodka, probably not going to cut it. Just FYI. Got it. Don't skip the Sudafed is what I would say here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, another common treatment for sore throats like this was something called a plaster. So a mustard plaster, for example, was popular. And this was just ground mustard and water. You mix it up and you make a paste and they would spread it on your chest or your back, as gross as that sounds. So it's, you (laughs) know, the the Regency Vicks rub. So cordials and uh, plaster is very common for colds, right? You know, where you had a sore throat or a cough. Now, if somebody had a fever and something like typhus was suspected, they did all sorts of, you know, bloodletting and enemas and water baths and ingesting metals.
1: Sounds pleasant.
2: Yeah, I know. It sounds fantastic. We've come a long way. (laughs) (laughs) One of the
0: really interesting things about this initial interaction between Emma and Elton right after she's left Harriet is that he has this fear of it being infectious, Particularly, like the, that, he really emphasizes that word. And he's urging Emma to stay away from Harriet as a kind of caution. So, what is the scientific and medical understanding of infection specifically and the spread of sickness at this point in history? And how is that different, perhaps, from the, the conversation regarding the London air that we had
2: earlier, where there's that miasma theory? Right. So this is so interesting. As as we talked a little bit about last time, the germ theory of disease was not formally recognized until, you know, the eighteen sixties or so, and I would say not widely accepted in Europe until the late eighteen hundreds. But there were certainly earlier inklings that Austin and others could have and I think would have heard of that we see reflected in the books. So one example is, you know, smallpox vaccinations were happening in the in Europe by the early eighteen hundreds, even though they didn't know exactly how it worked. They just knew it did, right? They didn't know that it was a virus that caused it, but people could recognize this idea of contagion, that people could spread illness between each other, at least within families or people in close quarters. So again, just this, at least this rudimentary understanding that some types of illness could be passed around. And I think the term infection here is being used to describe that. They just didn't know it was germs, so to speak, you know, bacteria or viruses that were the underlying cause. And so it seems reasonable to me that they could be talking about infection and the idea that hanging around someone who appeared very sick could cause you to get that same illness. Although I think the amount of time people spend in each other's sick rooms in Austin's book sort of implies they don't fully appreciate that. Right. Yes. But certainly in this example, I think, you know, there's some evidence for it. So it's, so it's it's, it's a lot of that proximity thing is that, that like they
0: don't understand germs, but they do understand proximity as an issue. Right.
1: Well, and Emma seems completely just like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> she has zero concern over this at all. Mm-hmm. But like we do get that scene in Sense of Sensibility where the Palmers quickly remove themselves and their newborn baby from Cleveland because there's this fear over Marianne's putrid fever. So would that have been sort of a similar type of
2: situation? I think so, and especially with the context of a newborn baby, right? You know, um, child fatality, especially young children, those rates were so high in the past. And again, w- even without the understanding of exactly what caused it, it, just having that sort of low-lying sense that of contagion, again, proximity, uh, would be enough, I think, for people to have a healthy fear, especially around young children. Yeah,
0: Well, and now with the context that I have about this idea of putrid potentially signifying something like typhus, because putrid is mentioned twice in Sense and Sensibility in relation to Marianne's sickness. So I I think, again, that kind of escalates it even more when you think about, again, the proximity to a child. Whereas, again, you know, with Elton, he might be doing it to exacerbate, you know, sympathies with, with Emma. Right,
2: right.
1: Later at this Christmas Eve party at the Westins, Elton takes his worries about infection even further. So this is from the book. It seemed all at once as if he were more afraid of its being a bad sore throat on her account than on Harriet's, more anxious that she should escape the infection than that there should be no infection in the complaint. He began with great earnestness to entreat her to refrain from visiting the sick chamber again for the present, to entreat her to promise him not to venture into such hazard till he had seen Mr. Perry and learnt his opinion. Okay, so in addition to the fact that Mr. Elton is being extremely presumptuous here.
0: Yes, overstepping by a lot.
1: Way overstepping. It seems like he's exhibiting some sort of, I don't know, science forward medical advice. Like, Reno, what is happening? Is Mr. Elton a gentleman scientist? Like, I need this to be explained.
2: Well, right. Well, and the simplest explanation is he wanted Emma and her money. Right. So he's just he's just being effusive and paying extra special attention, as you're saying. Yeah. But one thing that comes to mind, he was a member of the clergy. Right. And so he's probably seen more sickness than most people. And I was thinking that perhaps he was bringing that to bear on his actions. I mean, assuming he's genuine in some sense, he probably has seen more sickness. And he obviously feels that Mr. Perry could discern whether this illness was of the infectious sort that we really need to worry about, but is using sort of his past experience as a guide as well. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm also thinking just kind of off the top of my head, based
0: on, on what you were saying, that there's also, as clergy, there is this kind of expectation of education and that you go to learning centers like Oxford or or what have you in order to get your orders and things like that. So there is something about a man in the clergy potentially having those kinds of contact points as well in terms of education
2: and up-to-date knowledge. Right. A little more worldly in that regard. He's seen a little bit more or read a little bit more. So points
1: to Mr. Elton, I guess, for (laughs) being... A little bit on the cutting edge here, but also he's obviously being super gross with Emma. Yeah. I mean, to the point where even Mrs. Weston, it kind of looks at Emma like, wow, he's acting like you two are engaged or something. This is <laughs> bananas.
0: I think that's something that upon reading this a little bit closer, that that presumption on his part really came through because it's couched in this thing where it's like, OK, technically, yes, as a clergyman, he might have some.
2: Legitimate reason legitimate concerns (laughs) to be
0: invested about you know infection in his parish for example but the way that he's going about this in this particular scene is that he's essentially like claiming some form of authority over her movements like ownership over her as a person yeah like don't go until i've talked to to mr perry about you potentially visiting and it's just like oh that is such a big overstep (laughs) of what is what is appropriate Ooh, serious red flags.
1: He began with great earnestness. It's kind of like, you know, you can imagine Emma sitting there thinking, you're being annoying. This is a bit much. (laughs) But the second that he goes, to entreat her to promise him not to venture into such hazard till he had seen Mr. Perry. You know, like, I'm going to go consult with the doctor. I'll let you know when it's okay. And even Mrs. Weston is over there like,
2: what the heck? (laughs) (laughs) Like That's what's so great, right? Because we we're sort of talking about this with this modern interpretation like, "Oh, who is this guy?" But even in the book, it's clear that he was overstepping and uh-huh. you know, Emma would have felt that way. Like, "What are you doing? Who are you to tell me how to how to move around and make my decisions here?" And that's not just the benefit of a couple hundred years of, you know, women's rights speaking, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, he he's gross in either context, essentially. That's right. That's
2: right.
0: <laughs> Mr. Elton, not attractive 200 years ago or today. His grossness transcends
1: generations. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: Rena, is there anything else
1: about Harriet and her sore throat or the sort of idea of
2: infection in Austin's novels that you want to touch upon before we wrap up? Not in particular. I mean, I think it's been fun to sort of chew on it. You know a little bit, and and think about again that context and maybe what Austin's history, you know, say of typhus and and illness sort of brought to her storytelling. It's it's pretty interesting how she really folds it in to almost every novel. Yeah.
1: Well, I think just the idea of these kinds of illnesses being sort of an everyday type of thing, and and like you said, in a time before antibiotics, and you know, so people are just getting illnesses and using terms like putrid fever or whatever to sort of encompass a whole panoply of illnesses
0: yeah right yeah,
2: right there's a, there's a lack of precision in the medical terminology at this time right and and the the way to figure out what somebody had was just to wait a week and see if it goes away right yeah so, yeah um, <laughs> the symptoms are all the same and imagine how annoying it would be if you were somebody that was prone to getting strep throat and you know so you would have a sore throat for two weeks at a time and multiple times a season and there's not much you can do about it.
1: Well, I'm just trying to just imagine that sort of like, well, is this a cold and it's going to go away on its own in a week or am I going to die? Like you just have no idea. Yeah. Right.
2: And there always seems to be that that night, right? I think this was true in Pride and Prejudice, maybe where Jane had like the night where she was being watched very carefully because it always seems to come to some peak. And then after that peak, oh, they're going to be fine. But th- that seems to be a, a common theme in some yes. of these illnesses. The sense and
0: sensibility connection particularly as well, obviously that one's one that is also very plot-driven, but that Marianne has this kind of moment of crisis has passed. and But that there's also, I mean, again, you're talking about it as like, you know, Austin's plot devices, but it's also something, especially in Sense and Sensibility, that becomes drama, you know, capital D drama and we've got so much tension built around it in a way that
2: film directors
0: really enjoy at least. Yes, that's <laughs> right.
2: That's <laughs> right. Well, cuz if, if somebody's coming to their crisis moment, then this is where all the existential questions come to mind and you know, what am I going to do if I lose this person and you know, the cascade of events that will happen should something, you know, go wrong yeah. and and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It does make for a good dramatic arc. It does.
0: Well, and perhaps this is also contextualizing, for me also, Rena, the fact that in Pride and Prejudice, where Jane goes and catches a cold, and Mr. Bennett has that line where he's essentially like, well, you know, if she dies, it was in pursuit of Mr. Bingley. And it's so cavalier. And it's funny, like, from a modern context, because we know it's a cold, you know, everything's fine. But with what the context that you've provided, it's like, oh, it's, a, it's a little bit
2: more chilling, perhaps. Right. <laughs> The way he just tosses that off as as a father. Yeah. It's like, ooh. And Mr. Bennett was good at that, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. That's kind of his forte. He's good at a dry one-liner. hmm I love this additional context that you're bringing to, like, multiple novels. It's <laughs> so good. So good.
1: So, Rena, where can our listeners find you online? Or do you
2: have any projects or anything that you'd like people to know about? Well, thanks so much for having me. I don't have any active work going on in the Jane Austen space other than to look for opportunities like this where I get to merge my, you know, love for all things Austen with my science background. Feel free to find me with a Google search. I'm not the wonderful musician who will pop up at the first search, but (laughs) I'm uh, relatively easy to find otherwise. And I'm still on X as of now at Epi underscore rena. So feel free to find me there.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us again.
2: Happy to be here. It was so much fun.
1: Thank you again to Dr. Rena Jones for joining us for this episode. You can find us on Instagram at TheThingAboutAustin and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, TheThingAboutAustin.com. And email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com.
0: Stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about the end tale on Longbourn. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye!